Our uh, title today indeed is Food as Medicine. And the question is, why are we talking as food as medicine? Most of us went to medical school, um, and I don't see my slides. Maybe I might see them one day. There they are, and you can see them as well. Um, but when we went to medical school, they didn't give us any nutrition classes. Uh, but yet we were expected to, to deal with patients. And the fact of the matter is, of the 10 leading causes of chronic diseases, at least a half of them, maybe even seven of them, are related to poor food choices. In fact, if you look at this slide, um, the majority of people have no idea the impact of their food choices. It turns out that suboptimal dietary choices factor more prominently than anything in chronic disease. If you look at this, about 45% of deaths are due to heart disease, stroke, diabetes, and I want to add some types of cancers to this slide as well. And when you look at that, these are non-communicable diseases. And so it is not genes, it is not ethnicity, it's not old age, it is poor dietary choices that really have a lot to do with chronic diseases, what we call non-communicable diseases. In The Lancet, this particular study has been published over the last 27 years annually, and this relates to the health effects of dietary uh, risks across 195 countries. The whole idea of this study is to quantify the um, chronic diseases and attributable risks to, to diet. How much does diet affect these kinds of diseases? And what we see on this slide, the last time this was published was, was last year, the headline, the grabbing headline is, what we aren't eating is killing us. Can you imagine that? What we aren't eating is killing us. In fact, dietary risks are responsible for 11 million deaths, 255 million disability-adjusted life years. What are the diseases? Cardiovascular disease was the leading cause of death, um, in, and then after that was type 2 diabetes mellitus and certain of the complications associated with it. What aren't we eating? The slide tells us we're not eating enough fruit, whole grains, um, nuts, vegetable, and um, eating too much salt. If you look at rankings of, um, of death rates around the world, the United States of America should not be behind Rwanda and Nigeria in death rates. Yet our country ranks number 43 behind Rwanda and Nigeria, which are 41 and 42. So something must be done. As physicians, we are very good at prescribing medication. You go to the doctor's office, you get medication. So we're very good at prescribing medication, doing procedures, but yet we are not good at teaching patients how to reach up and turn off the faucet so their disease no longer has a hold of them. What are we gonna cover this afternoon? In the next uh, 50 minutes or so, I hope to cover some significant things. First of all, consensus views on nutrition. We also want to look at what Americans actually currently eat. And then we want to do a deep dive into two areas, the, relate, the um, issue of diet related to cardiovascular disease and insulin resistance, and what does the science suggest that we should eat. If you look at this slide, what you see here is a skyline. 
And if you look at nutrition studies, they can be very confusing and in fact overwhelming. On one hand, one study says butter is good and then next butter is bad. Then there's um, the uh, coconut oil. One minute it's bad and now it's good. So how do you look at that? So what we want to really look at is as you look at a skyline, you want to look at every study and what it contributes to the overall weight of the evidence. What does the overall skyline show? And that's how we're going to approach this. We're going to look at this looking at a framework of red, orange, or yellow actually, and green. And these are put in certain boxes. Healthful is the green box foods, debatable is the yellow box foods, and red is the the red box foods. Now when you see a red light, that means you stop, right? When you see a green light, it means you go. And when you see a yellow light, for most of us, I think it means speed up. But in this case, it means caution. And uh, so we're going to look at this framework. And you can see all the different foods in every box here. The majority of Americans prioritize their calories in the yellow and red box food area. So what we want to look at then, is what is the strength of the evidence in each of these boxes? If you look at the red box foods, the strength of the evidence, the overall consensus in the literature is that these red box foods promote harm. There is no study to refute that suggestion. In the green box area, if you look at that, the strength of the evidence, the overall consensus in the literature is that these foods are remarkably health-promoting foods. Then when you look at the yellow box foods, really the evidence is mixed. And the only reason it's mixed is that it's being compared to the red box foods. If you look at those yellow box foods compared to red, they appear to be really pretty good. So what we're going to do is, first of all, look at the items in the red box foods, and what we want to figure out is how do we convince people to change their eating pattern from the yellow and red box foods to the green box foods? So we'll start with processed meat. If you look at processed meat, for example, processed meat any, means any meat that has been treated. It can be fermented, cured, whatever, and it includes many items that you see in the blue box there on the screen, including something people love, which is chicken nuggets. Now, I've never eaten a chicken nugget. I have no idea what the attraction is, but people seem to, to love those things. The next thing we're going to look at is um, processed meat, and I want to uh, apologize for the, for the thing there. My slides were changed from PowerPoint to... Um, to keynote, but that should be, that blue box should be done by the red meat. I want to point out something in particular. You see beef, pork, lamb, and so forth. Pork is not the other white meat. Scientifically, pork is a red meat. Any red meat is any mammalian muscle meat. These meats are very high in myoglobin, and when they're exposed to oxygen, they become oxymyoglobin, which is really a quite a toxic substance. Um, let me just go back to one thing here. Um, we're going to skip the, the added sugar, and in fact, we're going to look at refined grains. So far as refined grains goes, we're going to look at the anatomy of a grain to make this really come home to us what this is all about. Um, so if you look at a grain, a grain has three parts. And the three parts are the bran and the germ and the endosperm. It turns out that the bran and the germ are very nutritious parts of the, of the grain. 
listed to the right of the slide, at least my right, I think it's on your right as well, um, you see a list there of whole grains and then pseudograins. So the pseudograins botanically are seeds, but functionally they are grains. So they include things like quinoa and so forth. So what does it mean then? What does, um, what does it mean when a grain becomes a refined grain? What makes it different? When you look at a refined grain, it is basically any grain that does not have the bran and the germ with it. If you look at just the endosperm, that is a very nutritionally depleted food and is not really as healthy as you would like. Now, this is one of the funnest things. This is a marketing trick. And that picture there represents a beautiful loaf of bread. And I just put that slide, there, that, that picture there, just as an example. So when you go to the grocery store, and you see a label on a loaf of bread. It says wheat bread, multigrain, seven grain. What does that mean? It is a marketing trick. The thing is, that kind of bread, there's nothing much different between that and white bread except that they've had the seven refined grains added back. The thing you are looking for, the first thing you want to see is whole. If it says whole, that means it's whole grain. If it does not say that, in fact, if you look at this, it says unbleached, enriched wheat flour. That's just the same thing. So we try to avoid that kind of, of thing. If you look at this slide, this is quotes, carbs. On the left hand is the green box carbohydrates, whole. On the right hand side is refined. And if you look at that refined side, that is what gives, quotes, carbs a bad name. You cannot lump fruit with fruit loops or lentils with Wonder Bread. You know, when we first came to the States, we came from Trinidad and Tobago. There are a few Trinidadians around here. But when we first came to the States from Trinidad and Tobago, my mom has always made 100% whole wheat bread. It's as crummy as anything. You can't believe how crummy it would never stuck together, but she served us delicious whole grain bread. Well, we went to school and discovered that people had something called Wonder Bread. You can make the whole loaf go into one slice, except they made 10 peanut butter sandwiches out of the entire loaf. It's just amazing. But you cannot lump lentils and Wonder Bread. It just doesn't work. In fact, I tell my residents, I don't want you using the term carbs. Carbs confuses the physician and the patient. And we want to try to disavow ourselves of using the term carbs from here on out. Now, that blue box should be done by ultra-processed food. Ultra-processed food. Ultra-processed food is industrially produced, scientifically engineered, highly palatable to keep people coming back for more. So these ultra-processed foods particularly are dangerous foods. On October 22, last year, 2019, do you guys catch the date? October 22, the great disappointment. A study was published in the JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and it was looking at plant-based meat alternatives, and specifically it was looking at the Impossible Burger and Beyond Burger. The question is, are those plant-based? Is this whole food? The answer is no. These two burgers have are calorie-dense. They are scientifically engineered. They are highly palatable, but they are not whole food. Whatever in the process of preparing it, whatever happens there, 
probably a lot of the nutrients are lost and those phytonutrients are no longer in that product. So these will also fit into the ultra processed area. So this is really an important statement. And this is from the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee. The Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee is a group of nutrition scientists that meet every five years. And then they advise the US Department of Agriculture what Americans should eat for the next five years. And so this is what they said here in 2020, it just came out in June of this year, this came out. And it's very similar to what they said in 2015, but there are two significant additions and we'll talk about that. It says a diet, this is coming from the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee advising the US Drug Administration what, ad, what Americans ought to eat. Americans ought to eat a diet higher in plant-based foods such as vegetables, fruits, whole grains, legumes, nuts, seeds, and lower in calories and animal-based foods is more health promoting and is associated with less environmental impact. Now, obviously, I would add to the statement, it clears the mind so that the Holy Spirit can really work. Now, two things were added though to this, which I think are very significant. The two additions are number one, that in the guideline recommendations, we should also consider the role of the gut microbiome in future guidelines. I am excited about the gut microbiome and we could talk about that a little bit today. But this is where nutrition is going. Secondly, we are to examine the relationship between nutrition and the immune system. I'm going to say some, let the cat out of the bag just a little bit. I am fascinated by the relationship of the gut microbiome and the immune system. In fact, um, if you look at issues related to the gut microbiome, we always think in terms of probiotics. We're going to talk about things related to that. But these things, I think, are significant additions that they just made. Number two was made in the context of COVID. COVID began to spot the interest in how does nutrition help with the immune system. Here they're recommending a plant-based diet, saying, you know something? There's something about nutrition that is important for immune function, and we're gonna come back to that as we get going today. I get really fired up when I talk about nutrition because it's my favorite thing. Michael Pollan, who is a, a, a nutrition writer, he said, eat food, not too much, mostly plants, pretty simple. So what is a plant-based diet? A plant-based diet is deriving the majority of our calories, 80 to 100% of our calories, from these green box health-promoting foods. So what about the Mediterranean diet? The Mediterranean diet, actually, the um, Harvard School of Public Health and the European Division of the World Health Organization got together in 1993, and they began to lay out the pyramid of the Mediterranean diet to allow people to understand what it is, what's the diet of that region. It is not just one diet. Um, it's a diet that was developed in southern Italy, Crete, and Greece. And this was because in those areas, it was observed that these people had low access to medical care, yet they had low levels of chronic disease and longevity. Then what is it about these people that makes them any better than others? And so with that, many, many studies were, were done looking at that. If you can, hopefully you can read that. I wish I had a pointer, but I don't. But based on traditional dietary patterns in those particular areas, these people were eating and they got points if they ate whole grains, beans, fruits, vegetables, olive oil, 
fish, and a small amount of wine. Just hang on to your hat. Don't go ballistic yet because I'm going to come back to this point. You lost points if you ate dairy and poultry, chicken, and red meat. And the benefits were reduction of cardiovascular disease, cancer, and diabetes. Two trials are on here. We can't, don't have time to go through them all. But the, these two trials, one of them, the Lyon trial, was actually a secondary prevention trial, and the PREDIMED trial was a primary prevention trial. Several studies. And the, the, the last one I'm going to put up here is from the New England Journal of Medicine. The New England Journal of Medicine had to actually republish it because of some issues with randomization. But if you looked at, at this data here, more plants, the better the outcomes. More meat, the worse the outcomes. And it turned out also that the fish, the olive oil, and the alcohol were not the primary benefit. The primary benefit was the plants. So that's a really important part about the Mediterranean diet. Now here's a quiz, and I'm going to run through this list. You can yell and answer if you feel like it. But which of the following is the number one source of calories among Americans age two and up? Is it sugar-sweetened beverages? Let me have you raise your hands. Is it sugar-sweetened beverages? All right, I see some hands for that. How about dessert? No hands for dessert. Everybody loves dessert. Dessert's untouchable. How about bread, bagel, and rolls? I see one hand for bread, bagel, and rolls. There are two hands. Okay, cheese and cheese products. I see three hands, one of which has already heard this lecture before. Well, the actual answer is it is dessert. It's the grain-based dessert. That's the number one source of calories amongst Americans less than two years old. Now, what's number two? It's the bread. Some people said bread. I want you to guess, what is number three? You gotta go quick, because we have dead space on air otherwise. Number three is chicken. It is chicken. Number three is chicken. The fact about chicken is this. Americans eat one million chickens an hour. More than 25 million chickens a day. I won't comment further, but that's number three. Number four is soda and energy drinks. What is number five? It's pizza. My twin sister said it's pizza. The category all by itself is pizza. Looking another way, 70% of our calories are coming from, if you look at the bottom, I hope you can see that, or the blue box is the processed, the ultra-processed food. Ultra-processed is in the blue. 58% of calories are derived from ultra-processed ultra, uh, food. Uh, the 12% that is processed food, and then the the unprocessed food is 30%. Interestingly, when you look at that 30%, very little of it is actually whole grain food. So we are deriving a paucity of our calories from the green box foods, and that's really a problem, and that needs to change. So what we're going to do right now, we're going to begin to take a deep dive into two aspects here, cardiovascular disease and insulin resistance. First of all, cardiovascular disease. We're going to talk about these blue zones. There are two groups of people that we're going to talk about, and um, we have to go very quickly because time happens, really go, goes quickly when we talk about nutrition. But the blue zones, we know about them. Uh, we are very proud because Loma Linda is amongst those blue zones. It was discovered that these people in blue zones enjoy an extraordinary longevity. And what is it that keeps these groups joined together? It is the diet. It's a diet that's as high in vegetables and nuts and grains and so forth. If they eat meat at all, it's at the side of the plate and doesn't function prominently on the plate. It's only at holidays or maybe a special occasion, but it's not every day. So that's the blue zones. This group of people, I love this group of people. I don't even know these people. But these, this is a Simani 
people, the Bolivian people from the jungles in Bolivia. Now, some cardiologists went and looked at these people and studied them from 2014 to 2015, up to the age of uh, 74, and did coronary calcium scores on them. And as they did those coronary calcium scores, they discovered that 85% of those people had a zero calcium score. Only 2% of those people had a moderate, or excuse me, a high risk calcium score. Over the age of 75, that was still persistent in that 65% of the people over the age of 75, these people had a calcium score of zero. A calcium score is significant. It really predicts your, your likelihood of developing a myocardial infarction. That is really significant. So they have two differences. First of all, the first difference between them and us is this. These Bolivian Simani people, 72% of their diet are high-fiber complex carbohydrate. 14% is evenly divided between protein and fat. The American diet is not like that at all. So that's, that's the one thing more complex high-fiber carbohydrate. The second thing, these people only spend 10% of their time, of, during the daytime, sedentary. Americans spend 50% of their time sedentary. So how do these green and yellow and red box foods relate to cardiovascular disease? This study was done uh, by Dr. Volk, who wanted to do a comprehensive summary of the accumulated evidence based on prospective um, cohort studies looking at diet, red meat specifically, and its effect on non-communicable diseases, specifically cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and cancer. And he found that there was a direct correlation between red meat and non-communicable diseases. So conversely, uh, these three studies here, uh, this is done, uh, one of them is done by Dr. Key, who is at Oxford University. These were all mortality studies. Dr. Key actually studied Loma Linda Adventists and noticed that they were dying less of cancer and less of cardiovascular disease. What was the issue? These people ate a vegetarian diet. His own study he designed, 6,000 vegetarians who got 5,000 of their non-vegetarian friends. They had a prospective study, and this was the outcome. 24% less uh, mortality in those who ate a vegetarian diet. Dr. Huang was very similar, a mortality study. Epic Oxford um, is a European study, and they looked at incidence of ischemic heart disease, 32% less incidence of uh, heart disease. Now, this is fascinating. Why is this? What is it that is causing this significant, dramatic decrease in cardiovascular disease? I wish I had time to tell you a story. I've been looking at the clock. I don't have time to tell you the story, but I might try to. What we have to understand is this. Every, um, if you look at food, and if you look at uh, cheese or eggs or dairy, these have a substance in them and red meat as well, that becomes metabolized to toxic products. So for example, if you look at this slide there, you see the eggs and the cheese and whatnot. That has phosphatidylcholine in it. If you eat, look at the red meat, that's L-carnitine. When this is eaten by people, it goes into the gut and is uh, changed into trimethylamine, goes to the liver, it's oxidized into a toxic atherogenic substance, trimethylamine N-oxide. That is a highly 
atherogenic compound. It causes platelets to stick together more, and you end up with increased cardiovascular mortality and so forth. What is interesting is that um, the first paper that actually looked at this, this has to do with the gut microbiome. This is happening because gut, the gut, when you eat this kind of food, the microbiome begins to work on that food and change into these toxic substances. The reason I mentioned this before is that we focus on probiotics. Prebiotics, though, are what you eat and what changes your gut flora. This is long-term gut flora stuff. If you eat long-term um, meat, you develop a gut flora that will change this food into this toxic substance. So eating the food, the prebiotic, the, it makes the different kind of bacteria in your gut. Out of that comes either um, substance that will attack your body or stuff that will reward your body. So the postbiotics are important. Probiotics are based on the prebiotics because out of that comes postbiotics, which can be beneficial to your health. The, the probiotics from this is very um, inflammatory. So the bottom line is this, the gut microbiome changes what you eat into a toxic substance and makes you have more chance of having myocardial disease. We don't want to leave sugar off the table. And if you look at this slide, you see an amazing array of colors at the top. This is the cereal aisle. I think every parent knows that the most dangerous aisle in the grocery store, if you took the candy out of the grocery store, the most dangerous aisle in the grocery store is this aisle, the cereal aisle. The colors are just, they just draw you to them. These two studies are very significant. The first one, um, about added sugar, and the next one looking at glycemic load. If you look at added sugar, the majority of Americans eat at least 10% of their calories a day from sugar. And then another significant portion eat 25%, more than 25% of their diet from, from sugar. So let me tell you something about this. If you eat 10% of your food from added sugar, the hazard ratio is 1.3. I'll unpack that in a second. If you eat more than 25%, it's 2.75, which means that you are 30%, you are 0.3 more likely, 30% more likely to have something if you eat um, if 10%. On the other hand, if you, have, uh, if you eat 25%, the hazard ratio is 2.75. Now, this morning, Dr. Schwelt talked about number needed to treat. I'll talk about number needed to harm. If you gave people 25% of their diet in sugar, the number needed to harm will be 22. In other words, one person out of 22 people will end up with cardiovascular disease, has a higher chance of getting it. Whereas 10%, number needed to harm is one in 265 people. 22 is pretty significant. Somebody can say 265, line them all up on the stage, only one person, and probably won't be me. But 22 people, it could be you. So 25% of, of your calories from sugar get, confers a significant risk of developing cardiovascular disease. This other study looked at the glycemic load of various types of food and its effect on coronary artery disease. And the higher quintile of, of uh, glycemic load uh, caused a relative risk of 1.98. The American um, Heart Association has recommended that women eat no more than six teaspoons a day 
and men eat no more than nine teaspoons a day of sugar. That seems like still a lot to me, but I don't know. It just seems like a lot. Um, this particular study was done trying to establish a dose-response relationship between fruits and vegetables and cardiovascular disease. In other words, how much fruit and vegetables is protective in terms of cardiovascular disease? This was a systematic review and meta-analysis. 95 studies worldwide were done, and it looked at this. For every two and a half servings a day of fruit and vegetables, the risk of coronary heart disease decreases by 8%. The risk of stroke decreases by 16% and all-cause mortality 10%. This benefit actually is, is enduring for up to 10 servings. For example, two and a half servings, five servings, and you keep going up to 10 servings, you have more and more benefit for eating more fruit. What's two and a half servings a day? Which is, by the way, the steepest part of the curve is going from zero servings to two and a half servings. Um, that would be a small banana, an apple and some broccoli. That's what that would be. So if you're looking at two and a half servings a day, that's what that would come out to be. Now, a word of caution. Not every plant-based diet is really plant-based. And so this was done, and this is 4.8 million person years of follow-up. It was a nurse's health study and the health profession's follow-up study. And so they looked at what's the effect of plant-based diet in terms of cardiovascular disease. And so the healthy, what, this was from the Harvard School of Public Health, they divided plant-based into healthy plant-based and unhealthy plant-based because French fries are plant-based. <laughs> and uh, mashed potatoes are plant-based. But when you look at what they're really talking about, refined grains, juice, Fried potatoes, sugar-sweetened beverages, sweets, carrot cake is carrots. But that's not the best kind of diet. So it was divided like this. And what he did, they found out, you can't see this very well except on the very bottom of the slide. If they look at the hazard ratios, if you look at overall plant-based diet, there's only a benefit of like 8%, which is not much. But when you separate it out into healthy plant-based and unhealthy plant-based, you recognize that the unhealthy plant-based confers a 32% a more likelihood of developing a problem and the 25% benefit if you eat a healthy plant-based diet. So that's really important. Now, this is one of my favorite things to discuss. This is great material right here. Plant foods and cardiovascular disease, what's the mechanism? So, first of all, plant foods replace the disease-promoting foods. That's important. It also reduces LDL oxidation. It improves endothelial function. I'm going to come back to that one. It reduces inflammation. It, it benefits. It, it alters the gut microbiota. It lowers the blood pressure and decreases lipids. But what I want to come back to is the improved endothelial function. Every fatty meal induces an inflammatory storm. It causes a stunned endothelium. So I want to say that again, and I'm going to tell you why I'm saying it. Every fatty meal causes an inflammatory storm, and the endothelium is stunned. Now, this came to me. I didn't understand what this was all about until one day, I'm going to tell you one story. I had to cut all my stories up because I had such limited time. But this story, to me, was so compelling. I had a resident, awesome resident, and uh, 
He was a Seventh-day Adventist, plant-based, vegan vegetarian. And there was another resident, he was from Kentucky, and tall guy, very brilliant guy, and uh, he said to him, you know, I, I think you should try a plant-based diet. The guy was already a genius. I, he goes, I think you should try a plant-based diet. The guy says, no, I'm from Kentucky, you know, I, I don't want to do that and everything. And, and by the way, uh, when we go to Kentucky, it's kind of hard to find vegetarian food sometimes. But uh, so finally the guy agreed to, be, to go on a plant-based diet. And after a week, this other guy, the tall guy from Kentucky, came, came to me and said to me, you know, my mind is cleared up. And I hadn't done this research yet, and I couldn't understand. This happened about five years ago. I said, how could that be? He said, every time my mind gets kind of muddled, I go back to the plant-based diet. So this is the, this is the deal. We have focused the, 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 the conventional paradigm for medical treatment of cardiovascular disease today is look at the long-term effects, modify the risk factors, decrease the cholesterol, control the blood pressure, stop smoking, all those kind of things. But we have not considered the hour-to-hour -hour variation in the blood vessels that happen every day. And actually, that's where it begins. And so what happens, though the endothelium produces nitric oxide, it's able to, to really auto-regulate the, the, the vascular endothelium so that blood can increase blood flow if you need to and so forth. What happens when you eat a fatty meal? The inflammation happens. The endothelium can no longer autoregulate. It can't produce nitric oxide. It can't increase the brain, uh, blood flow to the brain when you need it. And so you have this fog that is going on. So you eat a fatty meal for breakfast, a bacon and cheese sandwich. Have no idea what that is. But you eat that. Your mind goes into fog. Five hours later, what time is it? It's lunchtime. And you eat another fatty meal. And five hours later, you eat, quote, dinner. And so your brain stays in a state of continued fog. So what we know is that this is a, a very significant phenomenon that hour by hour your body is experiencing, your vascular, your vascular system is experiencing this fog that it cannot overcome because of the inability to produce nitric oxide. So that's really important. And, and a lot of the meat has all these things. We talked about TMAO already. And uh, so that is a really important uh, thing related to that. So with that, we're going to move now to insulin resistance. This happens to be one of my favorite topics because in the hospital, we see a lot of diabetics. And we're, look, we're going to look at how these green, yellow, and red box food affect diabetes. So when we treat diabetics in the hospital, um, one of the things we always have to order is a kind of a low-carb, kind of carb-controlled diet. And it's really concerning. So let's look, first of all, at normal insulin function. We're going to look at the banana. The banana is only a symbol of fruit. Um, and so let me just tell you a quick story before I get into that. One time I was rounding. This happened very recently. And my resident said to me, Dr. Schwartz, this guy just keeps asking for fruit. He's a diabetic. He keeps asking for fruit. And I keep telling him he can't have fruit. So I said, oh, well, let's go see the patient together. So we went to the patient's room. I said, Mr. So-and-so, uh, can you tell me what, what's going on? He was a 29-year-old gentleman, 29, very obese, about to lose his foot. He's about to have an amputation on his foot because of consequences of his, his diabetes. And he said, Dr. Schwartz, he goes, I just want some fruit. So I said, give the man his fruit. 
And here's why I said give the man his fruit. So this is a banana. And what happens when you eat a banana? The blood sugar goes up. What happens in response? The pancreas produces um, insulin. Insulin comes to the cell membrane. It binds to its receptor. It phosphorylates insulin receptor substrate, which then through a bunch of signaling mechanisms allows that purple thing there, that GLUT4, to go to the membrane and take glucose into the cell. That's what happens in a normal functioning situation. Now, if you have insulin resistance and you eat the same banana, the blood sugar goes up, insulin comes out of the pancreas, it goes to the membrane, tries to bind the receptor, nothing happens. What happens then? Do you blame the banana? The banana is just the victim. And so here's what is actually going on. When you look at insulin resistance, this really is uh, a significant part of the mechanism of type 2 diabetes. And what is happening here is there are some fatty subtypes that are accumulating in the cells of the liver and the skeletal muscle. Diacylglycerol and fatty acyl-CoA, they are building up here. There was MR spectroscopy studies done looking at cells that identified this whole mechanism that there's fat lipid subtypes building up inside the cell that's preventing the insulin from binding to the receptor, the whole bit, bunch of signaling that happens and allowing glucose to enter the cell. So it is not the glucose or the, 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 the fruit that's the problem, it's already what's been eaten that's causing the problem. It turns out that it's the red meat that is causing the problem. So fat accumulation in the skeletal muscle and the liver cells is called ectopic fat. It is the primary cause of insulin resistance. So the skeletal muscle has decreased ability to take up the glucose. The liver begins to, um, to produce more sugar and cannot um, produce glycogen instead. And why is that? And it is because the energy intake is greater than the energy expenditure. And adiposity, excess calories, excess dietary fat, inflammation, oxidative stress, mitochondrial dysfunction. This is what's going on. And what is causing the problem, first of all, is the ingestion of the meat. It's not the ingestion of fruit. And so this particular study here was done uh, looking at 12 different types of food groups in terms of development of diabetes, the risk of diabetes based on certain food groups. And when you look at this slide, and I have another one to follow here very quickly, processed meat and red meat. If you, bunch, if you look at those together, the processed meat, 37% increase in the risk of diabetes. Red meat, 17% increase in the risk of red meat. If you put those together, that is 54% increase of risk in the, of diabetes. And you ask yourself, that seems so odd. Whereas the sugar-sweetened beverages, 21% increase which is not to say that sugar-sweetened beverages are okay, but this is the issue. Now, this slide is very complicated, but it begins to tell you the mechanism. There are a series of, of things up there, mechanism, that begin to impact the metabolism of these things in the cell, and uh, it increase, includes things like, you know, saturated fatty acids, advanced glycation end products, all those kinds of things, the TMAO, the trimethylamine N-oxide, all those things cause insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes.
So what we have to tell our patients is this. You know, I was in the grocery, in the Sam's Club or someplace the other day, and, and these two people were talking about diabetes. They're going to get diabetes because their mother had it, their grandmother had it. And you want to say, you know something? You can do something about that. Because your relatives have it doesn't mean you have to have it also. You can actually do something about that. But that's the primary mechanism. It is true that beta cell dysfunction is the ultimate um, cause of type 2 diabetes, but preceding beta cell dysfunction is insulin resistance, and that's really important. So what about low-carb diets? You know, we tend to put patients on these low-carb diets. Um, and the question is, can low-carb diets increase the risk of diabetes? So there are several studies on here, and these are all prospective studies. The, the first study there was done um, looking at the, a, a portion of the women's, uh, of the uh, nurses' health study. They were looking at women who had gestational diabetes. The thing is that just because you have gestational diabetes, does that mean you will end up with diabetes? It is a risk factor for developing type 2 diabetes. And by the way, I just want to remind everybody, we're speaking of type 2 diabetes, not type 1 diabetes. So this study was done looking at diet um, in, in, uh, for longitudinal for about 20 years, looking at what would happen. So Dr. Bauer and his colleagues were looking at this, and they had these women, and there were, uh, there were tens of thousands of women in this study. And they looked at their diet that was low in carbohydrate, one group, low in carbohydrate, high in animal protein, high in animal fat, compared to a group that was low in carbohydrate, high in plant-based, um, or vegetarian, plant-based uh, protein and plant-based fat. And what they found was that the, pay, the people who had the low carbohydrate, high animal fat, high animal protein had a greater risk of diabetes and the people that had the plant-based protein and, and fat had no change, no increased risk of developing diabetes. So that tells us one thing for sure and that is that the protein source matters. The protein source matters. Um, the other study by Dr. Koenig was done doing the um, health professionals follow-up study. Again, tens of thousands of, of people had the exact same results. The, the, the instance of diabetes was greater as people were eating a meat diet. The, 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 um, the studies on the bottom that they don't improve di glycemic control over the long term, it turns out actually that in a year's time, you can get a good blood sugar control. But over the long haul, in terms of the hemoglobin A1C and all of that, there is no benefit to eating a low-carbohydrate diet. Now, again, sugar. How does sugar, because, you know, as we've been talking about, about red meat. Red meat really is the issue. But how does sugar then contribute to developing type 2 diabetes? There are two mechanisms. First of all, um, it can cause just synthesis alone in the liver of fat. You've heard of fatty liver. It can cause synthesis of fat in the liver itself. And then that can build up and cause insulin resistance. Secondly, it can just cause weight gain and obesity. So there are two mechanisms where, su where sugar can cause uh, diabetes. Um, so that's significant. Now, let me ask you another question. Which type of foods are most protective against type 2 diabetes? What kind of foods are most protective against type 2 diabetes? Is it cruciferous vegetables? Any hands for cruciferous vegetables? Okay, I see one hand. How about berries? I see two hands. How about berries? 
I see one hand for berries. How about whole grains? I see two hands. Awesome. How about fish? No one's votes for fish. Okay, guess what? It is the whole grains. Which means that it's not appropriate for us to tell our patients that have diabetes not to eat bread as long as it's whole grain bread. Okay, now here's the reason why. And this is something wonderful. So first of all, um, the whole grains have improved postprandial glucose response. It lowers the calorie density. But I want to draw your attention to that item number four there. It, it's metabolized by the gut bacteria to form short-chain fatty acids. Short-chain fatty acids are very important. Short-chain fatty acids is how the gut microbiome communicates with the immune system. That's really important, and we can talk about short-chain fatty acids later in the question and answer session, but it is amazing. So you know how it says that, that um, genes or genetics load the gun and environment or lifestyle pulls the trigger? Short-chain fatty acids disarm the gun and takes the gun out of your hand. They are important. They're important things as they, they, they fight your, for your body to really improve the immune system. It also increases uh, glucagon-like peptide, which we all know is a very important in maintaining blood sugars normal. So this um, cereal fiber, it is the cereal fiber that we're talking about. Look at this slide. The whole grain's lower diabetes effect is through cereal fiber, and cereal fiber is what has all these benefits to it. Okay. Now, this is one of my favorite studies. This is an awesome study. Fresh fruit in relation to instant diabetes and diabetic vascular complications. This was done in China and was the first of its kind. It was the first randomized prospective trial that was done. It was done over a seven-year period of time, 3.4 million person years of interaction. It was both a secondary prevention and a primary prevention trial that was done. And uh, what they did is they said, you know, fruit, fruit and vegetables. Vegetables make sense. How about fruit? Does fruit make sense in terms of feeding them to a diabetic? So they got half a million Chinese people from all different provinces and looked at them over seven years' time to see what would happen. And what they found was that if you had daily fruit consumption, 12% lower risk of diabetes. Now that fruit consumption was whole fruit. It did not include canned fruit or fruit juice. It was the whole fruit. And in those who had diabetes at baseline, they had fruit three times a week. All-cause mortality was 17%. Microvascular complications was 28% less. And the macrovascular complications were 13% less. So they found a tremendous benefit in using fruit um, in these diabetic patients. So fruit is not guilty. And in fact, it is not evidence-based for us to tell our diabetic patients not to eat fruit. Fruit is very helpful for a diabetic. Okay. So again, um, this one was done also used by the Harvard uh, School of Public Health, and it combined the nurses' health study and the health professionals' uh, follow-up study. And they had, obviously, tons of people in this study, giving them a plant-based pattern for diet as opposed to um, what is traditionally given to a diabetic. And what they found was the risk of type 2 diabetes. If you ate a plant-based dietary pattern, 
And note, it just says plant-based in general, 20% less uh, decrease in risk of developing type 2 diabetes. However, if you divide it up between the healthy plant-based and the unhealthy, now you see something very important, which is that 34% decreased with, with the healthy plant-based, with the unhealthy plant-based, though, 16% increased risk of type 2 diabetes. So the kind of plant-based is very important. Not all plant-based is plant-based. It's the healthy plant-based that we're really looking at. Now this study here um, is a very significant study. Dr. Neil Bernard, who has published a lot of material, um, did this, and he was the very first person to do this in the mid-200s, the very first person to do a randomized controlled trial looking at using a plant-based diet compared to the traditional American Diabetes Association diet in diabetic patients and to see whether or not there would be a difference. So in terms of the, um, the diet, it was a low-fat plant-based diet there were actually no calorie restrictions on this diet. And he looked at the conventional diabetes diet, which was a low carbohydrate, high protein, and so forth. Um, it turned out that they had better glycemic control compared with the plant-based diet. The hemoglobin A1Cs went down much more dramatically in the people on the plant-based diet compared to those on the American diabetes diet. And in fact, if you looked at the lipids, the total cholesterol and the LDL, the LDL cholesterol, it was dramatic decrease in those who are on a plant-based diet. On the American Diabetes Association diet, those numbers barely budged. So that was really important. Um, so the better lipid reduction and weight loss occurred with the plant-based diet. I believe that God has given us a diet in his word. And that diet from the very beginning of time was to eat a plant-based diet, whole food plant-based diet. I was talking to somebody uh, a couple of days ago here actually, and they were talking about how, you know, not, not every plant-based diet is really plant-based. And it's true. Not every plant-based diet is plant-based. And he began to describe to me all these things that we've already discussed. And I think it's fairly intuitive that people begin to recognize that you could be eating a plant-based diet and still not be healthy. And it's because if you look at the unique aspects of this particular diet, it's the whole food, you recognize that there are some gaps and opportunities to improve. So it's a truly plant-based diet. This slide here, again, just looks at the glycated hemoglobin values, and, uh, and that's looking from the slide that we had before. The bottom line is the one that is the decrease in hemoglobin A1Cs compared to those on the American Diabetes Association diet. Two things you notice. First of all, that the bottom line there, it is lower than the top line. In other words, the drop in hemoglobin A1C was significantly greater than those taking the American Diabetes Association diet. And if you look at the top line, the American Diabetes Association diet, that line begins to increase and come to about what it was before the start of the, of the, of the study. So there's no question in my mind, first of all, in terms of diabetes, I believe that it is 
almost malpractice to tell our diabetic patients that a, that a high-carbohydrate, plant-based diet is not the best diet. They can also eat bread. If you look at that cereal fiber and the whole grains, what caused the, the, the blood sugar to be more improved was the whole grains, it was cereal fiber. Diabetics often ask the question, they tell me, I can't eat bread. Well, if they eat the right kind of bread, how much? They can't eat all the bread, but they can certainly even have two pieces, two slices of whole grain bread, and that's still fine. That cereal fiber, the benefit you get from cereal fiber is so huge, I think that it is worthwhile to, uh, to advocate for our patients that they can have this, uh, this, this kind of diet. Um, and another myth that's very important, I think, that we get out of our uh, patients' minds is that type 2 diabetes is unavoidable. I firmly believe that type 2 diabetes is avoidable. Now, having said that, there are some genetic issues sometimes, but I believe that the suboptimal dietary choices factor more prominently in diabetes than anything else. Even genetics or ethnicity or anything, it's most important. We need to begin to share with our patients the plant-based diet. Before I came up here today, a resident, one of my residents texted me and said, are you giving the lecture on, the, on food as medicine? Because I gave them a lecture on food as medicine. They requested to get the lecture on food as medicine. And begin to use that as part of the curriculum that we are sharing with our patients. We don't, in the medical schools, I want us to begin to share in our medical schools or, or Seventh-day Adventist Medical School the importance of nutrition on control of all these diseases. The fruit is not causing the problem, but this is what the issue is. So in the beginning, God said, of every herb that yields seed, of every tree whose fruit yields seed, of these you shall eat the food. All these wonderful things God has prepared for us that we can eat and we can be healthy. And I think we need to share with our patients the evidence that says that indeed these foods are appropriate. So tonight, we are going to be having a panel discussion. Let me get the number here. And the panel will focus on issues related to, to diabetes. There are several things that could be discussed during this time. There's a phone number that you can phone your questions to. And it is 618 area code 228-3975. I was told that that phone number would also be on the screen. One thing that I've come to believe also is that to tell our patients to eat a better diet, plant-based diet or whatever, is not possible on their own. It can be only, be only be done by prayer with the patient. And so as we close the last 20 seconds, I just want to have a quick prayer for all of us as we attempt to educate our patients about health. Father in heaven, you've given us everything that we need for health in your original plan. Give us the courage as physicians and dentists to share with our patients the good news you've given us that we may have the abundant life that you desire. For Jesus' sake, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.